Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. As we gear up for award season, there's no better time to join us. By becoming a Vanity Fair subscriber, you'll gain exclusive access to our in-depth coverage of film, television, and the best of Hollywood. And that's just the beginning. Vanity Fair takes you inside the worlds of entertainment, culture, politics, and scandal, bringing you iconic images, era-defining stories, and much more. Get 15% off a year of digital access to Vanity Fair by visiting VanityFair.com and using promo code POD15 at checkout. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a full year of insights and exclusive digital access. Subscribe now. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich, and I'm here for this interview episode with David Canfield. Hey, Katie. David, you had the pleasure of talking to Leslie Manville, who's not just a beloved uh, celebrity around our parts, but is starring in kind of the ideal summer counter-programming. Uh, please tell me about Leslie Manville and Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris. As she calls it, the perfect movie to get us back into theaters, and I could not agree more. She is so delightful in this movie. It is a far cry from what I think a lot of us are used to with her, which is playing very intense, sometimes cold characters. Uh, here she is just a bundle of joy and energy and light and um, gets to wear some stunning Jenny Beeman costumes and mm. gets to uh, smile at Isabel Huppert's face, which makes Isabel Huppert crazy. It's just, it's everything <laughs> you could want from a July theatrical movie. Um, not to be all like I was on board with Leslie Manville a long time ago, because I certainly am no expert, but I did see her in Mike Lee's Another Year. She's worked with Mike Lee a lot, and um, his his films can often be very dark, but she's such a bright, breath of fresh air character in that movie, which is often very sad, and this feels like it's really in line with that tradition. Yeah, and we talked a lot about Another Year, and we talked oh, a lot great. about Mike Lee. Yeah, her work in all of his movies is among my favorites of hers. I've been a fan of hers for a really long time, and it's funny that you say that because... I think she is very aware of the narrative that post-Phantom Thread, uh, her career has, you know, had a bit of a shift. Um, she's getting a lot more Hollywood offers specifically, but she says, you know, I've I've had a really great career for a really long time. And it's amazing that the opportunities keep coming, but she doesn't look back on like the early 2000s as a dark period <laughs> or anything <laughs> like that. Well, she's she's in this great place where if you need someone to be like imposing and scary and smarter than you, you you can bring in Leslie Manville, and that's a, that's a niche I would love to fill personally. Yeah, and then she can do this too, and I think that's a real credit to her range, which we also talk about. Yeah, well, uh, I can't wait to hear it. Let's hear your conversation with Leslie Manville. Leslie, I wanted to start by asking you just about the nature of playing this role. Um, I consider you a bit of a chameleon in in my encounters with your work over the years, but I feel like a lot of your best known roles, 
stuff like Another Year, which I love, Phantom Thread. There's a there's a certain intensity, let's say, to the characters. And <laughs> Mrs. Harris is just delightful and gives all of herself to others. And that felt like a nice change of pace. I'm not sure if it was like that for you. Oh, it was definitely like that for me. And thank you for calling me chameleon because that's all I aim for. And that is absolutely what keeps me interested in my work. I'd absolutely hate it if I only was a one-trick pony. And thankfully, I get offered the variety as well. So um, I'm allowed to put my wishes into practice. But yeah, it was a lovely thought to play Ada because she is so wholesome and good. And yes, she's got her pain and her grief and all of that. But it's certainly the whole film is done with a different brushstroke to the desperateness of Mary in another year and um, the pent-up angst of Cyril in Phantom Thread. I mean, this is this is a different type of character, but but a different type of film as well. You know, yeah. obviously we are creating a film that people are going to come out feeling nice about themselves and nice about her and feeling a little bit better about the fact they can go to the cinema after the two years that we've had and all of those things. Yeah, absolutely. I think that this is a perfect summer back, you know, back to the movies kind of experience. Isn't it? Yeah, it really, yeah, it really is. Yeah. yeah. Good. I'm glad you feel that. When you make a project like this, is the energy on set different? Is the energy for you playing that kind of character different? or No, not? I mean, it's an interesting question because I can see where where you're coming from. But, you know, just because a character is a, is a bit more lightweight, shall we say, it, it doesn't mean that you it's any easier to get them right. There are differences, obviously, but doing somebody like Ada doesn't mean that the day is just easier and you're just hopping and skipping around and it doesn't bear, you don't have to really think about it all too much. It, it it requires the same kind of commitment and work to get that level right. And I think one of the things it's always difficult in a film is getting everybody on the same page. Mm. You know, that you, you, you can't have an actor who comes in and has misjudged the kind of level of the performances or the level of reality or unreality or heightenedness or non-heightenedness you you know every actor's got to be on the same page as it were so that's a credit to the cast because they 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 do come in and everybody gets it right but yeah it doesn't make any difference to the intensity of the day as it were yeah yeah no I, I can see that also for you, having played so many scene-stealing, let's call them supporting parts over the years, obviously you've played lead roles before, um, but this is a, to your point, it seems pretty intensive in that respect, really carrying the movie, the face of it from all angles, and, and really the energy of the movie comes from what you bring to it. Uh, how do you find that experience? Well, it, it, uh, I think you're right. In terms of movies, I have done a lot of roles that have been with the exception of some of the Mike Lee work yes um it is a change but I'm used to being a leading lady in television you know a lot of the projects I'm doing now or have done and plays as well so that kind of uh responsibility is not alien to me at all it's it's just that now I've got 
focus features behind me. (laughs) (laughs) No small thing, no small thing. (laughs) No small thing indeed. In fact, focus features have been behind, you know, quite a few of the films I've done, including Phantom Thread and Let Him Go, which was a film I did with Kevin Costner and Diane Lane. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, they've been they've been there quite a bit along the way so but yeah of course it's great it's not very nice to do a movie and be the be the central character and have that responsibility and yeah 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 it's very good let him go another not so nice character let's say <laughs> in the best no. way <laughs> good though hey i like yeah. all of that Well, let's zoom back a little bit with Mrs. Harris. Um, what was your familiarity with the novel, the character, and, and how did the script come your way? Well, no, I wasn't familiar with it at all. It came my way because the, my my dear late friend Alan Rickman and his wife, Rima Horton, had known about the script quite some time ago. Oh, wow. And were very, very taken with it. So... Alan, as you know, is no longer with us, but Rima is my friend and she called me up one day and she said, look, there is this script called Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris and I thought, well, that's a good title for a start. (laughs) And she said that, you know, her and Alan had been involved with the film and been very interested in it and Alan had always liked the script and I thought, well, knowing Alan as I did and knowing how kind of meticulous he was and, and what what brilliant taste they both have. I thought, well, this obviously has got to be good. So, so Rima said, look, you know, it's been a, it's been a slow one to get off the ground with all the funding and everything. But, you know, she said it, I, 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 it looks like it's going to happen and um, that Rima was going to be exec producing it in some capacity. And she said, I think it's going to come your way. So, and then it did. So that, <laughs> that, that was it. And I did, and then I read the book and read the script, obviously, and asked if I could be an executive producer on it as well, because I wanted to have some creative input because I am upfront in it. And, you know, you yeah. don't want to be feeling that you haven't got quite the people involved. I mean, obviously I'm not, that there are different capacities to being exec producers. Sure. And I, I just wanted to be very involved with the creative side of it in terms of actors. And in fact, you know, the, the director of photography was, a, was my suggestion because I'd worked with him before, Oh wow. uh, Felix Wiedemann. So I wanted that kind of thing because uh, Anthony Fabian has not directed as many films as I've been in. So, you know, you just wanted to, I just wanted to, collaborate with him on on casting choices and things like that. I would imagine, especially in a movie like this, where clothes tell a lot of the story, the arc of your character is sort of in line with the dress and, or I should say, dresses. Well, indeed, and it, and it's not just the Dior dresses that Ada wears. It's It was getting the clothes that are right for Ada. You know, you might think, oh, well, that's easy, isn't it? It's just a skirt and a top and a pinafore and a coat and a hat but it's it's important because she hasn't got a lot of money you know we we've made her be someone who's quite good with a needle and cotton herself and so we've had her clothes you know embellished and livened up by her which was also very much a post-war thing if you could do a bit of sewing you did because the fabric was in short supply well into the 50s yeah so women generally women were were 
taking an old blouse and doing something with it to make it give it a new bit of life. Hmm. Not to go too deep into the film or spoilers, but the scene where we have this dress reveal of you putting it on and wearing it for the first time is so grand and heartwarming. I'm just curious about the experience of playing a moment like that for the character and also just, yeah, being able to wear those clothes. I know. Well, it was, yeah, I loved that. I mean, you mean the scene in the atelier when she's trying on the dress and being, yes. yeah. I loved all of that. It was just, it's just joyous. Give me a frock and I'm happy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I do love a frock. So it was just gorgeous. And that, that, Frock in particular was my personal favourite. Yeah, it it it, uh, it they're, they're lovely scenes to play, and 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 I I just had a freedom. There's a lot of there's a lot of made up stuff and invented moments that came effortlessly because you know I had these great actors around me being all the you know the fitter and the measurer and all these women fluttering around and and you just you just riff off of it really so it was it was great it was really enjoyable doing those scenes yeah um, I wanted to ask you about playing opposite Isabel Huppert who um, oh. I imagine that <laughs> <laughs> it looks like a lot of fun it looks like a kind of a, a dream pairing from from my vantage point yes well I think it probably is a dream pairing I mean we, we I think what we'd quite like to do now is go and do a play together um I mean yeah. we I think we've crossed over in a lot of the plays that we've done actually hmm. I think she's done Ibsen's ghosts which I did in London and New York. Um, she, I mean, she's like me. She's a big theatre actress, you know. And of course, we, you, you, you get us two together. It's, it's, it's really, it's really good. Um, and and uh, but obviously, you know, Ada is. There's this kind of, you know, Ada's feeling in terms of status. She's definitely way below this woman but Ada doesn't really think like that you she know. doesn't see it yeah she's just going well I'm here I've got some cash why don't you want it why can't I just go home with the frock now you know because <laughs> um, it's just a world that she doesn't understand you know she just yeah. doesn't understand that couture world at all and why should she but let's not be snobby about it I'm here with my money and my money's as good as the horrible, the nasty woman I'm sitting next to at the couture show. Um, money is money is money. And of course, that's what Lucas Bravo's character ends up acknowledging, yeah. seeing. And then, of course, they she goes to Mr. Dior and explains it all. And it's all a bit of a revelation for the house of Dior, which I do believe actually did happen as well. That's what started them into doing ready-to-wear clothes and going into lipsticks and things like that. Something that the woman who didn't have the money to have a bespoke gown made for them could nevertheless enjoy something about Dior. Hmm. Yeah. Um, there is a nice bit of connection between this project and The Crown when uh, Ada, sa Ada says, I love Princess but, Margaret. <laughs> I, but that was in the script already. I'm you know. sure, it wasn't, yeah. It wasn't put in. It wasn't put in for me because obviously Princess Margaret did go and get clothes made by Dior. And um, and obviously also, the, you know, the 50s, M Margaret was at the absolute height of her fame, as it were. She was... Mm -hmm. She was the most photographed woman and remains, I think, the most photographed woman because, you know, she just, yeah, that was, she was there on, she was, she was the woman 
in the UK who was you wanted on the front cover of your magazine or your newspaper. Yeah. Had you have you had an experience like that with characters who are in conversation with each other, as it were? It's it's interesting to me because you know, you're you're playing Mrs. Harris, this woman who is so looking up to this character who you are then coming to embody who has all of this historical and cultural significance. There's a there's an interesting link there, I think. Oh, well, there, well, there is, of course, not least of all, because they're kind of poles apart, aren't they, as Indeed. As, as, as women. But um, no, it's been wonderful. It is wonderful playing Margaret. I've still got to do a bit, bit more of her, you know. Yeah. There's so much, there was so much uh, wonderful stuff to read. But in a way, you have to read all that, let it, let it sink in and then forget about it, because finally what you're doing is a drama, it is Princess Margaret, but it does, as everyone knows who's watched the series, it does play around with chronology, and it has to make um, it has to make a program that's interesting and watchable, and it isn't a documentary. So you know, I love I love the places the series has taken Margaret and the way it's uh, the way it's the way it's captured her in all these different stages of her life. You know, and I'm obviously playing her in the last. Um, the uh, final act, at least yeah, in terms of the act, series. But the last kind of 15 years of her life, you know, mm-hmm. um, which was very different kind of woman to the one you've you've seen in the previous seasons. Mm. I wanted to ask you about uh, an open letter you'd signed on to, the Acting Your Age petition. Oh, um, yeah. And just both how you got involved in that and, and how what that said about where your career has been, what kind of struggles you faced being a woman who's gotten older in this industry, as any woman in the Mm. industry has, um, and what you hope comes of something like that? Well, I mean, I was just asked to sign the petition. I can't remember who by now, but um, clearly it was one I wanted to put my name to. And part, I mean, not least of all, because, you know, there's no denying I'm doing very well and that I've worked constantly through my 50s and I'm now working constantly through my 60s. And I'm not just playing the wife, the mother to somebody who's the more interesting character. I am playing the interesting characters, but there's not enough of it around. So that's why I'm wanting to write, put my name to those um, causes because it it needs to get better so that more of my peers have more work. But I think there is a shift. Mm -hmm. I I think it's very clear that there's an appetite for women of my age, my generation, to watch interesting drama that where they are represented. Um, Mm -hmm. And they're like, you know, Emma Thompson's got this film out now, where we're dealing very much with a woman's sense of her own sexuality and indeed her own sexual activity. And it's there. It's out there. It's not a kind of a woman over 50 having sex and being interested in sex. I mean, you know, come on. Uh, And just trying to trying to say, well, yes, it's funny that, isn't it? Women over 50 and 60 don't think of themselves as being unsexy, unsexual, or not needing or wanting sex and romance. You know, it's mm-hmm. let, let's just get that one out of the way. But so there is there is a shift happening, but there needs to be there needs to be more more parts still. And yeah, the attitude needs to just carry on 
widening and being more inclusive. Yeah. I think in your experience, I would guess it's somewhat twofold where you have those broader cultural, slower (laughs) cultural shifts you're talking about. And also I, I know you've talked about Phantom Thread and how that maybe marked a new shift, particularly in Hollywood for you. Yes. People that have come to me through basically Phantom Thread and maybe a few of the later Mike Lee films, you know, they kind of think you've just suddenly been, you did something else for 20, 30 years. But, you know, I feel where I am now is an absolute development of working from when I was 16 and doing so many plays and working on with so many fantastic playwrights and directors. Um, And I do see my work, A, in the theatre and B, with Mike Lee as being the work that was so formative, you know. I think theatre is incredibly important for an actor um, and, and I think that it's not... It's not as attractive to younger actors these days. Mm. The smart ones are doing it. Jodie Comer is doing it. You know, she knows that that's that's where that's where you're going to learn stuff and that's where you're going to get better. And you know, she I haven't seen her play yet, but I I know that it's. Um, but people I respect who have seen it have said it, you know it's an extraordinary bit of acting. And but you know, theatre is is a ver- has been a very important part of my life. But and I you know and I I. I don't mind that it's all been... A lot of people say, oh, it's a late flowering career. Well, I thought it was pretty flowering in the in my 20s when I was getting to work with Carol Churchill at the Royal Court Theatre and the National yeah. Theatre and the Royal Shakespeare Company. It was pretty flowering for me then. But, of course, people are measuring it in terms of fame, I suppose, and success and, you know, Oscar nominations and BAFTA nominations. And that's that's the measure that a lot of people want to use and that's that's fine because they're right it is if you look at it in that way it's definitely got a, a, a momentum and it's continuing to have a momentum and which is great because i am in my 60s and a lot of people expect it to be getting quieter but it's it's i couldn't be more busy if i tried hmm. uh there's a a twitter account that posts Oscar clips, clips per, of the performances played oh, at the Oscars. I, I'm not on Twitter, as you I, I know. So I'm going to explain. <laughs> um, but yours uh, played, I think, right when the account started last year, and it, it went far and wide viral. Um, did it? <laughs> yes, it did. And there's that. I also noticed listening to it that there is just enormous audience applause when the clip ends in the in the Oscars theater, I don't know there if you was, remember that. I know, yeah. I do, I do. Listen, I do remember the Oscars. <laughs> yes, I do remember that, and they played the the bit, you know, when uh, the breakfast table with yes. Daniel Day Lewis and I. Don't pick a fight with me. You certainly won't come out alive. Uh, it, it's a it's a great clip. It's a, um, it's a great scene. And it did. It got a big whoop in the audience. <laughs> so I thought, yay, it's good. That's pretty good. That was yeah. yeah, that was a good day. I I I met Steven Spielberg and I he came up to say hello to Daniel who I was sitting next to at the Oscars and and I thought, well, I hope I hope Daniel introduced me to Steven and Steven turned to me and said, "Hello Leslie. Well, my life was made." <laughs> Steven Spielberg knows who I am. What else yeah. can a girl want? <laughs> yeah, there's one thing I guess the movie can do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I've been a huge fan of your 
work particularly with Mike Lee and Another Year is one of my favorite movies, period. It's one of my favorites as, as well. I mean, if anyone asked me what my standout Mike Lee would be, I mean, they've all been amazing. And it's because of the range of parts he's given me that I don't think anyone pigeonholes me. But I, I Mary's kind of got a special place, really. Hmm. But anyway, sorry, what were you saying? So I'm just curious, given how formative Mike Lee was for you as an actor, particularly in films, what you learned about being on films, working with him and, and how sets work and, and how the craft works, because it is distinct from theater, as you were mentioning. Yeah, well, I've learned I've learned masses through Mike and his cinematographer, Dick Pope. And I mm. always tune in to their conversations about how the scene's going to be shot. And, and Dick is so brilliant at obviously understanding the scene and the nature of the scene and the heartbeat behind the scene and knowing how the camera work will serve the emotion of the scene. I mean, that's what he is genius at. So I... I love it. I'm not one of those actors that just sort of doesn't care about what all the other departments are doing. I absolutely love listening to those conversations. And yeah, it's one of the joys of it, really, for me. Yeah. One other thing I thought of with Phantom Thread is it is such an incredible craft movie. I mean, you have, those costumes in that movie are unbelievable. Um, I know. But it's also, it's Paul Thomas Anderson, so it's going to look amazing. And yes. I imagine... That was unique too, right? <laughs> oh my God. Well, I just love Paul. I just love him. We had such a great time. I mean, 14 of the best weeks of my life, my working life. Hmm. Just wonderful because he kind of left me to it in the beginning. You know, he's very unprescriptive. Just let me come to set and start to do my thing. But once you start doing your thing, he's he sees all these things that you're doing and then he gets all fired up and then he's... And then you're just the pair of you. The pair of us were just cooking with gas on a daily basis. It was, mm. it was absolutely joyous and such good fun. I mean, there were times when he'd have to leave the room because he was laughing so much. He just had to get up and walk out because he could he couldn't watch the take without laughing. Did you expect it to be that funny? You know, it's he's not always known for comedy and you you see the logline for the movie and you maybe don't expect what both you and Daniel bring to it in that respect. Well, cuz there's a kind of ridiculousness to those characters, isn't there? Yes. And yeah. you know, the if you analyze the situation, you know, there's these this brother and sister and they've kind of always been together. They run this company together. She knows him better than anybody in the world. She's getting rid of his girlfriends for him. I mean, it's this weird setup. Very, very strange. And of course, Daniel's character is like Reynolds is this is this man child, really. Mm -hmm. And she's trying her best not to enable it but yeah. you know there's only so much she can do but yeah so so there, there's humor there's dry dry humor in that setup because it's not as you'll have spotted it's not kind of out and out comic comedic it's it's you know, you, you can watch Cyril take off her glasses and tidy her hair. And, and that's funny in itself because you just think, how more anal is this woman going to be, you know? <laughs> yeah. Wow. Well, I think you go from that to Mrs. Harrison, you do see uh, a chameleon to go back to where we started. It is oh, well, that's quite good, different. Honestly, that is what 
It's not just having that label that pleases me, but I'd get bored otherwise. I would get bored if I only ever played the Adas of this world or only ever played the Cyrils. It would be, wouldn't be so much fun. So, yeah. well, I think we're having a lot of fun watching you, uh, Leslie. Thank you so much. This was great. Thank you, David. It's nice talking to you. Thank you. That does it for today's episode. We'll be back next week. Thank you for bearing with our shifted release schedule with the Emmy nominations. Uh, in the meantime, find us at VanityFair.com or on Twitter at Little Gold Man or on our own. I'm at Katie Rich and David. David Canfield, 97. And please text us at subtext 213-513-7215. Our editor and producer, as always, is Brett Fuchs. Brett Fuchs. 